Hey, good evening. Uh, it is great to be with you guys on this Friday night. And it's, it is strange, right, to just say, like, happy Good Friday. Because uh, this is one of those mixed emotions where we celebrate the cross, but we even just contemplate the cross and reflect on the cross. So uh, if you would, just turn to Mark 15. Mark 15, as we look at this story um, of the cross. Again, this is just a strange thing. If you think about this, Christians all over, and really, truly all over the world, gather together to remember this bloody, horrific scene of the cross. And it's not just what happened physically there, but you know what was happening behind the scenes, what was happening spiritually, like what was the Lord doing supernaturally at the cross? And we want to reflect on both. We want to see like the wrath of God being poured out. We want to see just the bloodiness of it for the sake of understanding that was because of our sin. He didn't just die for our sin, but because of our sin. That we, we took place, uh, we took a part or a role, you could say, in the death of Jesus. And it's just one of those things where we want to like celebrate and say, thank you, Jesus. But we also just want to reflect. We also want to contemplate. We also just want to kind of take in this moment of what's happening, how we're just joining in with, just collectively, really with every church around the world, kind of taking in this, this Good Friday moment. Like by this point in time, Jesus would have already been taken off the cross and buried in the tomb. You know, and this is one of those things we just want to take in what has happened at this point. So Mark chapter 15, uh, even as I say all of that, right, it, it does sound strange. When you talk to people or you're maybe you invited someone to a Good Friday service, it's, it's bizarre. And I so agree with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to this world. But to us, but to us, it's the power of God. The message of the cross is it's foolishness to the world. But to us, man, this is the power of God. You know, this, this instrument, this tool called the cross, which was, again, just a, an, exu, an exec, execution kind of instrument, has become just uh, a symbol of just redemption, a symbol of just how God redeems. You know, we call this Good Friday because what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And so we look at the cross in that kind of way. Man meant this for evil. The cross is meant to be an evil thing to end Jesus' life. We want to be our own Lord. We want to be our own God. We don't want to acknowledge someone else. And then God used this to redeem this for good. So we just want to reflect on this. I love how Billy Graham said it. He says, uh, the cross shows us the seriousness of our sin, but it also shows us the immeasurable love of God. Like there's this dual mixed feeling when we look at the cross. You realize like the seriousness of our sin, it led to the cross, but it also speaks of this immeasurable love of God. And so it's just this weird moment. I don't know if you guys have felt that. I don't know if every Good Friday, I just kind of feel that sense of thank you, but oh, like thank you, God, but this was because of me? Like, I don't know. It's like, how do I kind of take this in and just, there's so many emotions kind of attached to this. And I, I just hope that the Lord can kind of do something where he just kind of uh, just reignites our ima imagination again when it comes to this moment and what happened and what the Lord is doing. So uh, as we look at this, as we talk about the cross, I just want to make it really clear, you know, the cross uh, is really the central kind of message of Christianity. You know, if you think about it, think about different religious leaders, whether you could say a, a Buddha type or Confucius, really death kind of ended their mission. Like they were going to teach their ways, to teach their practices, to teach their beliefs, and death kind of put a stop to that. It ended their mission. But for Jesus, death was his mission. Like he came to die. So upon death, it's not like, oh, his mission ended. It's like, no, mission complete. That's why we say, and that's why Jesus says, it is finished. And this is really the gospel in three words. It is finished. 
And so it's one of those things for us where other world, other world or religious leaders, you could say, oh, death had gotten away. It ended the mission. We go, no, death was mission complete for Jesus. It is finished. And so we want to take this, this in on our Good Friday. I think one of the greatest preachers put it brilliantly, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said this, the preaching of the cross of Christ was the very center and heart of the message of the apostles. And there's nothing I know of that is more important than that every one of us should realize that this is still the heart and the center of the Christian message. And so this is at the heart of our faith, the cross. And before we just even read the text, we're going to read Mark 15. We're going to look at 20 verses tonight. Um, but before, we, we're not even going to read that in the beginning. I just want to spend some time and, and just pray. So would you just bow your heads, close your eyes. We're just going to pray. And as we do that, I just want you guys to just take a second. Just think of the different verses of the cross. Think of what the cross was. Think of what Paul said in Colossians were the handwriting of requirement that was against us he nailed to the cross. Think about how on Jesus, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Just taking the different verses, taking just the different, your, what your experience of the cross, what it means for you, and just want to thank Jesus for that. Just take a second to say thank you, Jesus, for the cross. Just kind of want to enter this time just more with a reflective state. Father, we just want to truly thank you for giving the best for us, that you did not redeem us with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, God, that that symbol, what, this, what the cross was, what it means, what it still means to this very day, is, God, that you can save anyone. You are willing that Jesus, there's no one too far from you, that we, have, we all have access to you by your blood because of what you've done by your sacrifice, that Jesus, you were that Passover lamb who took away the sins of the world. So Jesus, we just want to thank you. Um, we just want to even tonight ask you, God, to remind us of truths that can maybe be old or sound familiar, but Jesus, again, make it new. Jesus, we just want to boast in the cross of Christ. We just want to just say, thank you, Jesus. That's how we're saved. It truly is finished. Though this is a, a mixed emotion kind of a day or night, it's one of those things where we just want to also just celebrate Jesus. Thank you. Thank you for the finished work of the cross. Thank you that everything that was required of me has been nailed to the cross. We just want to praise you now, Jesus. We ask that we would just really hear from you and walk, walk this out in our lives that it'd be a belief that bleeds into really every area of our life, God. That the cross and Good Friday would not just be a once-year thing, but we would live our, our lives as followers of you, Jesus, just from the lens of the cross. We ask this in your wonderful name. Amen. Amen. You know, obviously, uh, there are a lot of different paradoxes in life, right? I don't know if you've ever experienced something where it's kind of like mixed emotions, uh, but it's like a different emotion for the same thing. For me, you know, I'm trying to start running again. I hate running. It's a mixed emotion of like I dread it, but then afterwards you kind of get that like runner's high a little bit. For me, it's like half a mile, but it's still there. It's still something. Uh, but you can think about so many different things. Like life itself is a paradox. When you look at life, you go, man, life is beautiful. Like there's nothing like for me here, my two-year-old like laugh, like that belly laugh. You're like, oh, this is so beautiful. And then when you walk through or you look at the news or you just see something pop up on your phone, you go, life is just disgusting and vile. 
it's crazy how we could say that like, two different things about the same thing. It could be just a simple thing like eating healthy. You're like, I hate eating healthy. I love eating healthy in the same breath. It's just weird how there's just so many different kind of paradoxes, meaning two things that should contradict, but in reality, they, they complement each other. You know, obviously, when you think of the cross, the cross is probably the prime example of this great paradox of, like, the cross is the, the world's worst, but it's heaven's best. Like, the cross is just kind of, you look at the cross and you say, wow, this is how evil man can be, and this is how good God can be. The cross is just that, this many, it just feels so different. Like, you just truly see, just like, think about God left heaven, came to his own, was rejected, spat upon, beaten, abused, crucified. It's like so ugly when you see what humanity did to the Son of God, and then yet you go, but it's so beautiful. The cross is so beautiful. Like, we sing about the cross. We talk about the cross. It's just so bizarre how, like, there's different things in life that have, like, this dual emotion, and I think the cross is probably that at its pinnacle. And I want to be reminded of both feelings. So tonight, as we just talk about the cross, there's a side, like, we have to feel the weight of it, like, the seriousness of our sin that was laid on Jesus. But then you go, God, thank you for your goodness and your plan of redemption. Thank you, God, for just the symbol of the cross. It's, it is bizarre to think Christians adopted and, like, took this symbol of the cross and basically put it on different, like, tombstones for Christians for centuries to say, this symbol, which has just been so disgusting and vile, is one of the most beautiful symbol. It's a symbol of redemption. Because again, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. And so I, I hope as we talk about just the cross and the, the scenario of the cross, God can just remind us of that dualness there that happens. I think R.C. Sproul said it really well. He says, the most obscene symbol in human history is the cross, yet in its ugliness, it remains the most eloquent testimony to human dignity. Within just the same breath, you have both emotions and feels. So here in Mark 15, we're going to look at really three kind of scenarios around the cross, three snapshots of the cross and again, I, I, I maybe like some of you, maybe not all of you, but I grew up just hearing a lot of different messages on the cross, um, not just on Good Friday, but just kind of grew up with the, the cross, the cross, the cross, and like just a lot of different perspectives of the cross. And it's weird how, be, how good news can become old news. And I just want to kind of invite you today, like, God, give me just a different perspective, a different insight, remind me of something, humble me, encourage me. I just hope there is that mixture of emotions where God, like, humbles us and then lifts us up at the same moment. And so I want that to happen as we talk about the cross. Don't let this message on Good Friday of the cross become something you're like, I'm so familiar with this, I know this. Like, view this in a way where you're like, Jesus, I want to see the cross in a whole new perspective today. So here's how we're going to approach this. In, in Mark 15, we're going to read our text, uh, but we're going to break it down to kind of three different snapshots of the cross. Here's the first one. We're going to look at carrying the cross. We're going to look at Jesus being crucified on the cross. And then we're going to look at uh, confession of the cross. So carrying the cross, we see that first scene. We're going to see the whole scenario around the crucifixion, crucified on the cross, and then the confession at the very end of the cross. So let's read. It's Mark chapter 15. Uh, let's pick up in verse 20, Mark 15, verse 20. Just so you know, at this point in time, obviously last night Jesus was in prayer. He's in the garden of Gethsemane. He gets taken. He gets betrayed by Judas. He's on trial. There's a mistrial, essentially, but they end up wanting to crucify him. The crowds cry out to crucify him. Uh, Pilate hands him over. Jesus is beaten. He's scourged. He's spat upon. Twist a crown of thrones. Place it on his head. Mock him put a bag over his head, beat him brutally. And here we are, pick up in Matthew, or Mark chapter 15, verse 20. Mark 15, 20. It says, and then, and when they had mocked him, they, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, 
as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought Jesus to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. All right, carrying the cross. This is interesting. Obviously, uh, we've probably heard of this guy, Simon. He's mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which is pretty significant. And here's a guy who gets to participate in carrying Jesus' cross. Now, before we kind of unpack that thought a little bit, I I want us to understand where Jesus was at, obviously, physically uh, at this point in time. Like, we, we know what he's just walked through. He just got scourged or flogged. I mean, many stories and many just historical accounts show that people died from that alone. They would take just this, this tool called a cat of nine tails, which is full of just whips and different like balls, metal balls, maybe stone, uh, rock, jagged rock, usually glass involved, and they'd whip the person. And they'd whip them about 39, 40 times, debatable, but whatever. But they'd just, they'd just be a, 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 just a crazy kind of like <laughs> unleashing on Jesus. Where history even tells us as they do this, many times the back was so exposed that you could see the ribs on the backside. You could just see it so brutal that it was just basically torn apart. I mean, obviously Jesus is physically exhausted, bag put over his head, beaten. And he's at the point where he's, he's tired, obviously. He's physically tired. He's emotionally tired. He needs someone to help him. Matthew and Luke kind of talk about that. And so this guy, Simon, the Cyrenian, comes to his aid. Now, again, I kind of want to put, put yourself just for a moment in Simon's sandals, right? What a bizarre thing. Um, this guy was from uh, an area of like northern Africa, just a heavy, heavy Jewish population that would actually go, and, and they, many times they'd go there for Passover. Simon most likely being a Jew and actually there for Passover, to celebrate Passover, to bring his lamb to the temple that week, and to kind of just go through the Passover practices. You think about this guy. This guy understood his guilt. He understood his sin. And you could see he's there with his two boys to just celebrate this, this Jewish festival of Passover. And here he is watching this person who he doesn't know carrying a cross down the road. Now, here's why this is significant, and here's why I'm bringing this up. Um, anyone who really studies this text and kind of tries to connect the dots a little bit, go, look at this guy, Simon. Like, look at his background. It's very interesting that Mark even tells us his children's names. Like, the Bible doesn't usually give insignificant details like that just for no reason. It's just connected to something, meaning that Alexander and Rufus were probably two people the early church knew, they were probably followers of Jesus as well. You know, people make these connections because in Romans 16, it says this. Uh, uh, Paul writes, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother. Uh, this idea, just this little closing statement, usually Paul would just greet people in the church in a significant way. Rufus, again, this name, was not probably just there for the sake of being there, probably connected to this same person, Rufus, Simon's kids. Now, I know you could say that is speculation, but again, there's not usually random details for that reason. Here's why I'm bringing this up. This guy, Simon, is there with his boys. They're old enough to travel to Jerusalem for Passover. They're watching this man, Jesus, carrying the cross. His dad gets dragged into it. And it seems at this point in time, walking like, who is this man? Why am I doing this? There's some sort of reflection point. Remember, just 50 days later, it's going to be a Pentecost. We're told that the gospel went out in their language. You know, you see just God just kind of doing things behind the, the scenes. I love how it says Rufus chosen in the Lord, like God was doing something. But here's why I'm bringing this up. This Simon guy had a part to play in carrying the cross. And no doubt, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all show us this guy, Simon, just to reveal this truth, that all of us had to have a part to play in carrying this cross. You know, when it comes to Good Friday, we talk about the cross of Jesus, but we have to talk about our cross. Like when it comes to Good Friday, obviously we reflect on who Jesus is, what he's done. We could never work our way for salvation or work our way to heaven. We could never do anything good enough for God to love us more. We boast in the cross of Jesus, absolutely. But there's a side of the cross where it reminds us of the cross we bear. 
that it reminds us of the different statements Jesus gave just throughout his life in ministry. Like, hey, 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 I'm going to carry my cross, but you too are going to carry the cross. It's Luke chapter 9. Jesus said it. He says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself daily, or let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus goes, hey, this is what it takes to be my disciple. Luke 14, he says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I think no doubt Matthew, Mark, Luke wrote this guy, Simon, in to just remind us of like, listen, all of us have a part to play in carrying the cross. Like we all identify with Jesus through crucifixion. Paul picked up on this theme a lot. Paul's like, I, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Like Paul picked up on this theme of just like we too carry the cross. We too walk in this way. You know, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a guy that is just well, really well known for writing a book called The Cost of Discipleship, who ended up dying uh, really for Jesus during World War II. This guy says the same thing. He goes, listen, uh, he, he said it this way, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. The point is, as we talk about the cross, as we reflect on the cross, it reminds us that we all truly carry a cross. Listen, if you are here and say, I've decided to follow Jesus, you're going to carry a cross. You, you too, myself included, have to pick up our cross daily and follow Jesus. Is that so we can be saved? Absolutely not. It's because we are saved. We want to relate to Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And there's a side of Good Friday where I believe God wants to speak to all of us and saying, die, like die to yourself, die to your flesh, look at the crucifixion of Jesus, look at bearing the cross. He died for you, absolutely, but we join in with him in saying, death to Josiah, alive to Jesus Christ being in me. Like death to me, my ways, what I want, and I want to be alive to Jesus. And it sounds so bizarre, right? Like not a lot of people probably preach this on Good Friday, but I just want to invite you into carrying the cross. Like I want to invite you into coming up to die. Like I want to invite you in to join Paul where Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. Again, just on that theme of just crucifixion. This is a part of just our lifestyles, followers of Jesus. Like this is who, this is what we're going to be about. It's saying, you know what? The world's going to live a certain way, but if I want to find my life, I must lose it. And just the way of Jesus is so different. We're saying, hey, the way to power, like what does the cross speak of? The way to power, the way to salvation, the way to life comes through death. It doesn't come through like overbearing people, and like using your power to manipulate people. The cross shows us how just God uses humility to raise up leaders, to raise up people. The cross is just that great reminder for you and I that we relate to Jesus in, the, in his death. Paul said in Galatians 6, he goes, God forbid that I should boast in anything except in the cross of Christ. You know, and I have been crucified in the world and the world to me. He said, God forbid that I should boast in anything except the cross. I mean, this, this is that moment reminder for us on Good Friday, to boast in the cross of Christ. To also reflect and say, we too, like Simon, get to carry this cross and identify with Jesus. And it's a weird thing, I get it. But I just like hope we as followers of Jesus are like, yes, Jesus, I too get to join in this journey. But then, obviously, with Simon, we'll just keep moving on. We see the idea of just this crucifixion scene. And there's just so much here in these verses. Like, there's so much here. So I want to unpack it. But as we kind of look at this, just crucified on the cross, just the scene of Jesus being crucified, as we read this text, we're going to look at 10 plus verses. I'm going to ask that you just kind of read the text, like really read the text, really take it in. Let's pick up our story in verse 23. So they took him to Golgotha, verse 22. Verse 23, what happens next? It says, then, verse 23, they gave Jesus wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but Jesus did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now, it was the third hour, 
and they crucified him. It's 9 a.m. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, which was the king of the Jews. With him, they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scriptures was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroyed the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests, also mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Verse 33. Now, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All right, again, familiar text maybe that we read. But just stay with me. Mark has a unique perspective. Mark is, is focusing on all the shame and mockery, reviling. Mark's perspective is like, look at how they're just reviling him, mocking him, shaming him. Mark is trying to bring this out. Mark is also showing us that this was a divine appointment, that the cross was not like, oh, no, the cross. Like, Mark is pulling Old Testament scripture to say, this was God's plan all along. In Isaiah uh, 53, it says, it pleased, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He says this was God's will. It was God's will to crush him. This was God's divine plan all along. Now, in those verses that we just read, Mark actually pulls from seven different Old Testament verses. And I kind of want to show you them like parallel, like side by side, because I want you to see this. I want you to see how detailed Mark's writing is and how just in line it is with the Old Testament. So we'll put them up here to see the first one. Uh, in, in Mark 15, 23, it says they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, which fulfills Psalm 69. For it says in Psalm 69, for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Uh, number two, it says they divided, in Psalm 22, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Mark verbatim basically says that. He says, and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. If it fills Isaiah 53, it says he was numbered with the transgressors. It says they crucified him with two robbers. Number four, on Psalm 22, it says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And then Mark says the same thing in verse 29 through 32. It says, they, again, this phrase, as they pass by deriding him, wagging their heads, saying, aha, you who destroyed the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. The chief priests and the scribes mocked to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. They're just constantly fulfilling this side by side. In Psalm 22, it says, they pierced my hands and my feet, which is Mark 15, 24, they crucified him where they pierced his hands and feet. In Amos 8, Verse 9, it says, And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will make, I'll make it like morning for an only sun. That's what Mark says. It says, Then the sixth hour had come at noon. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. The last thing, Mark, it's Psalm 22, where it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus quotes that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's why I'm showing you this. Mark is brilliant. Mark is like, look at, just in these like 11 verses that we read, he's like, look at how many scriptures it fulfills. This was God's divine plan all along. Mark is like really doing something. I don't know if you've ever like thought about the cross in this way. Like the cross, obviously, is where Jesus was our substitute, right? He took our place. He took our sin, our filth, our disgust, and he gave us his life. And you think about this, though. If, if the cross is just about substitution, like why the cross? 
Like, honestly, why did it need to be so bloody? Why did people need to walk by, spit at him, wag their heads, make gestures at him? Like, why did it need to be this public thing? Why did it need to be, like, so just vile? Like, why did it have to be that way? And, and some try to answer this and say, well, listen, this is the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus instead of on us. That's why we see it just so extreme. That's why we see it so bloody. That's why we see it so painful. Like, God couldn't do this in quiet or in secret because he needed to make it public because it needed to be a public salvation. But here's what I want us to see even this thought. I think you see the mockery of Jesus. You see it being so bloody. You see, you see everything about it being this way. Because I think that Mark is trying to show, like, it proves the need even more so for the cross. Meaning, it just reminds us why. Like, you see how disgusting man is. Mocking, wagging, judging, trying to quote scripture. Trying to, like, just manipulate and judge and be critical of Jesus, the one who gave him his life for it. And, and Mark is trying to expose just, like, this is why he had to die. Like, do you see how gross we are? Like, do you see how we're just we're mocking the Son of God in the moment? And I think it even proves even more so the need for the cross. I mean, I want you to think of these statements they said to him. Like, what if Jesus actually did what they said? So they said to him uh, in verse 31, it says, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Verse 32, they said, Descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Like, what if Jesus actually got down from the cross? Like, think about the irony in Mark's writing. He's like, don't you see, like, if he were to get down from the cross, he could not save you. He saved others. He cannot save himself. It's like, well, yeah, he's staying up there to save you. You know, if this were a movie, like a modern-day movie, this would be the time where Jesus truly just, like, walks off the cross. And, like, everyone before they know, like, they're on the cross. Like, this would just be, like, oh, how we would make it. Like, yes, like, righteousness has won. Like, we would almost want it to be that way. And it just so goes against, like, what we're, like, we're rooting for Jesus, and yet he still dies. And I think Mark's trying to show, like, this is why. Like, he had to do this. He had to die to save others. If he did save himself, he couldn't have saved us. Mark is just kind of flipping everything up on them, showing them, and saying, don't you see in this moment, like, this is why he came. Again, no one would look at this scene and say, this is my God. This is my Savior, the one who bled and died. This is mine. This is exactly what God uses. God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God uses something like the cross, which appears foolish to the world, but to us it's the power of God. And Mark is basically reversing all of these things. Like, I want us to see that Jesus was forsaken so we wouldn't have to be. Jesus is walking through this, and he's bearing all of this so that you and I wouldn't have to walk through it. John Calvin said, The Gospels portray the Son of God as stripped of his clothes, that we may know the wealth gained for us by this nakedness. For it shall dress us in God's sight. God willed his Son to be stripped, that we should appear freely with the angels in the garments of his righteousness and the fullness of all good things. You see, like, his name was put to shame, and he was mocked, so we don't have to have our name put to shame. He was bared, stripped naked, so you and I could be clothed in his righteousness. The idea is like he's portraying this in such a, a dramatic way, and it's true because it really was dramatic, to say everything he walked through was so that you and I wouldn't have to walk through. We could actually receive the opposite. He was made naked so we could be made clothed. He was beaten and rejected so you and I could be accepted and loved. He's basically just flipping this out. He's like turning this around in every way. Isaiah 53 says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. He's basically just portraying Jesus, saying, don't you see that power, that victory comes through suffering, comes through loss? You see, I I want us to kind of take us into this scenario as followers of Jesus with the disciples 
and you're going, here's the one who we thought was the Messiah, the Christ, and everything's being stripped away. And it, what looks like the feet obviously lost, we, we know would become their victory. The cross for us just makes us slow down a little bit, just to take in. You know, you and I have power, you don't have life because of his death. And basically the cross is this great reversal that God does. We'll keep reading verse 33, but let's see what Mark says. Mark says, now when the sixth hour had come, uh, there was darkness over the whole land and until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then some of those who stood by, verse 35, uh, when they heard that, they said, look, he's calling for Elijah. Then some ran and filled a sponge with full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. I obviously want us to see this, right? You see that when it comes to the cross of Jesus, like even the creation itself is groaning. From 12 noon to 3 o'clock, just darkness over the land. The idea that this does fulfill the prophecy in Amos 8, that at noon the sun went down, that there's darkness over the land. But I want you to see that like creation itself is experiencing the crucifixion scene. Like this is so much more than just a physical darkness. It's basically saying, man, mankind's darkness and sin was placed on Jesus in that moment, in that time, and the whole world itself becomes dark at that time. Uh, Warren Wearsby said it this way. He says, all creation sympathized with the creator as he suffered. He says, the darkness of Calvary was an announcement that God's firstborn and beloved son, the Lamb of God, was giving his life for the sins of the world. I want you to see it in this way, that on the cross, it's like Jesus, the creator, the giver of life, almost becomes uncreated and experiences death. So Jesus, the one who is with God in the beginning, the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who's the giver of life is now experiencing death. He's actually experiencing everything what the world was before him. He's experiencing the darkness. He's experiencing everything that creation was. So stay with me for a second. If you remember in the, in the book of Exodus, right, when Moses is trying to deliver the people of Israel out of Egypt, there's 10 plagues that Moses basically pronounces on the Egyptians. Now, if you remember those plagues, they weren't just like random plagues. It's actually like a, a sign for us of like judgment day, essentially. And if you think about this, Everything like that, that should have been working stopped working. Water becomes blood. Daylight becomes night. You think about nature. There's just frogs, fleas, lice. Nature's not working. It's almost like creation was being uncreated. And here's what I want you to see on the cross. Would you remember the ninth and tenth plague? The ninth plague that happened was darkness on the land. The tenth plague was the firstborn son would die. You see, in this moment on the cross, we're kind of getting a picture. I love how the Bible kind of interprets the Bible and brings us back to just parallel stories. The ninth and tenth plague, the last plagues, you go, wow, darkness comes over the land, and what's the tenth? The firstborn son dies. And that's what's happening on the cross. It's darkness on the land. See, Jesus basically came to reverse every curse on the cross. That it was, this, it was despicable for someone to die or hang on a cross, and Jesus is like, I'll bear that curse. Everything happened for Jesus to basically reverse that moment. What I want us to see, even in that story of the Passover, I mean, this is that Passover week. Do you remember that during Passover, it didn't matter if you were Jew or if you're Egyptian. If you did not put blood on your door, you were going to die. Meaning, judgment was coming to good people, bad people. Judgment came to everyone. Who were those who weren't judged? The ones who weren't judged had blood placed on their doorposts. The idea is that judgment comes upon all. It doesn't matter if you're good or bad. It doesn't matter if you're pagan or, or a part of a religious community. 
The idea is like everyone needs blood to cover them from judgment. And see, this moment of Passover, obviously it's speaking of Jesus, saying, listen, it's not whether you're good or bad. It's that you need blood applied to your life. The blood on the doorposts to protect you from judgment, that's the blood of the cross to protect you from judgment. At this moment in time, we see Jesus just reversing every single thing that was happening. And then he cries out, as we read lastly, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we have to talk about this, obviously. I mean, this is one of those things. He doesn't say my father, like he always talked to God as the father, my father, my father. He doesn't say my friend. He just uses God in this way of like, my God. This almost shows a lack of intimacy. Like once was, what was once there is now gone. He goes, God, why have you forsaken me? The whole idea of this, obviously fulfilling Psalm 22, is saying he was forsaken on the cross so you and I would not have to be forsaken. Jesus was cast out, cast out of the city, was crucified kind of outside the community so you and I could be brought back into the community. The idea of the cross is Jesus constantly trying to undo everything. And we see he's saying, God, why have you forsaken me? Obviously at the cross, there's some sort of break between just the fathers and the sons, just intimacy. And we see this break happening which I think was worse than any moment, obviously. And it, this a father saying, listen, my son's fellowship was cut off so you could be brought in, so I could be brought in. This, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? is not just some rhetorical thing. There's an answer. It's like, why, why was Jesus forsaken? So again, you and I could be brought into the family of God. He, he experienced the hell and wrath of God so you and I wouldn't have to be, so you and I could be brought in. I love how Tim Keller puts it. He says, this forsakenness, this loss was between the father and the son, who had loved each other from all eternity. This love was infinitely long, absolutely perfect, and Jesus was losing it. Jesus was being cut out of the dance. Jesus, the maker of the world, was being unmade. Why? Jesus was experiencing our judgment day. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It wasn't a rhetorical question, and the answer is for you, for me, for us. Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. The judgment that should have befallen on us fell instead of Jesus. I mean, this is why he went through that. It's what Isaiah said in Isaiah 53. He goes, the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on him, us. This is what separated from him, separated Jesus from him. Martin Luther says, the beautiful, glorious, sinless Jesus at the moment of his crucifixion became the horrendous, despicable, disgusting, deplorable, wretched, ugly thing in all creation. I mean, that's what the cross is. The cross is just that weird, like, man, the most beautiful, the Son of God became just filled with sin so that you and I could be filled with his righteousness. I mean, this was the great exchange. This was the great switcheroo. This was God placing our sin on Jesus so that you and I could have the righteousness of Christ on our lives. And we see just this happening in this moment, the six hours of hanging on the cross, the three hours of darkness. We see what God, we see what was practically happening, but behind the scenes we're told, we get a glimpse that in those moments God was laying on Jesus, all of our iniquity, all of our sin. So we look at carrying our cross, but this is the crucified Jesus on the cross, it's that moment. And then I want to point this out because this is just so profound. There's one person who gets it. It doesn't seem like the disciples get it. It's crazy to me because it doesn't seem like any of his followers truly get what was happening except for one person who is not a believer, who is not a Jew, and he ends up believing. And I want to read this guy's accounts, and this is the third point, just the confession of the cross. If you would pick up again verse 38, the confession of the cross, and here's what we'll close with. It says this, then the veil of the temple, right after Jesus breathed his last, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite Jesus saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, 
he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. I want us to see that in this moment, the only person who really got what was happening seemed to be this Roman centurion, this leader of an army. Now, this is, this is interesting to me, right? Like, if you read anything on this, this seems to be the climax of Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is to lead us to this Roman centurion's story of his, this great statement of, this man truly was the Son of God. Now, let's talk about this for a second. Um, you, you and I probably not so much are exposed to death all the time. Like, we don't, we don't really see a lot of people die. This Roman centurion has seen a lot of people die. Like, he's basically a, a hired hitman. This guy's seen a lot of people die. A lot of people die. But something was different about this guy's death. According to this, like, Roman centurion, he's going, I- I've seen so much, but I've never seen anything like this. And his confession is, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, here's why this is interesting to me. Mark begins his gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, with that exact statement. Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Like, Mark begins his gospel with, this is the Messiah, the the Christ, the Son of the living God. And the only person that says those exact words is this Roman soldier. And the point is, this guy said there's something different about his death. Like, truly, this man was the Son of God. This is the climax of, like, life. This is the climax of the story. This is, this is the point of the cross. The point of the cross is to bring us to this ultimate confession that truly he was the Son of God. That it, how this man at 33 years old, three years of, like, ministry, three years of investing in people, this story is still told. A couple thousand years later, all over the world, a couple billion followers of Jesus. Like, what's that about? How did this guy have three years of life who never really traveled outside of his own land, like how did he have so much influence and sway and how did he change history as we know it? For this man, this Roman soldier, he saw it, he goes, this man must be the son of God. There's something different. This guy didn't even need the resurrection at this point for him to know that. He, he sees the cross and he goes, this is, this is it, this guy is the son of God. You see, it looks like obviously Jesus lost. To the world, the message of the cross is foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What I want us to see is that idea. You see, Jesus breathes his last. He cries out, God, why have you forsaken me? The veil in the temple is torn in two. It says from top to bottom. Obviously, the veil in the temple, if you know, like, just, just even the way the temple was set up, this was a thick veil, like possibly 10 inches, 18 inches, like a really thick veil. And the Bible clearly says from top to bottom, basically God saying, come on in, like God ripping the veil, God doing this, saying, come on in. This veil separated man from the holiest of holies to just, just from the holy place. And this veil separated people from just God's intimacy, God's glory, God's weight. It just was that veil that separated people from God. And Mark is obviously saying that veil is rent and torn to invite us in. I love how one author says it. It says, when that veil was torn, God's presence, God's glory, now was like on the loose. Like, I'm not going to be constricted to just a temple made with hands, but I'm now going to be in the land and dwelling amongst and in my people. Like, God was just on the loose in a sense. See, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom so you and I could be brought in. Uh, the author of Hebrews makes this connection between the veil and Jesus' flesh and says it so well in Hebrews 10, 19. He says, we need to have boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which Jesus consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Listen to what the author says. He goes, the veil that is his flesh. The veil in the temple was a picture of Jesus' flesh. Just like the veil was ripped apart, and now we have access to God. He's saying Jesus' flesh was ripped apart, so now we have access to God. Everything in the temple, if you study it, speaks somehow of Jesus. 
the altar of incense, the brazen laver. It always speaks of the gospel in some way. And the author of Hebrews says, the veil speaks of Jesus' flesh. This veil was ripped apart. We now have access to God. Jesus' flesh was ripped apart so we can have this access to God. And this Roman centurion is just seeing this moment, and this great confession happens. This must be the Son of God. I've seen a lot of deaths, nothing like this. I've seen a lot of things in my life, but nothing like this. He was truly, this man was the son of God. And this is the confession of the cross we make. The cross reminds us, and this is why we gather to say there's no one like Jesus. That ultimately victory came through defeat. That we look at and say, like, just we look at loss, we look at filth and vileness of man, and yet this was God's glory, this was God's plan of redemption all along. And we just see how God does this in this moment. And this is the confession, this is why we gather. Listen, on this Good Friday night, I just want us to reflect on just the fact that we have a part to play in carrying our cross, but ultimately Jesus' cross was enough. It is finished. And this great confession of he's the Christ, the Son of God, this is why we gather, this is why we worship, this is why we sing, this is why we take communion, this is why we do these things, to make that same confession. That believers all over the world look at the cross of Jesus and say, this is where the power of God lies. And so you know what we want to do? We want to just close at our time by reflecting on the cross and taking communion. Because today is Good Friday. The night before Jesus, they had the Last Supper. They had Passover. And this is the night where Jesus basically redefines the Passover meal. And just stay with me, food. I know you guys got your little cup, and you can just grab it and hold on to that. But just stay with me for a second. The Jews would get together on Passover, and they basically hold the bread, the bread. And they would say something to this extent. They say, this is the bread of our affliction. This bread represents how you and I were afflicted. Get that Jesus takes this bread and says, this is the bread of my affliction. Please hear this. This bread would remind them how they suffered and were in slavery and in bondage, the bread of the affliction. And then Jesus goes, no, no, this bread speaks of the affliction I'm going to suffer. My body's going to break. This, 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 this cup that we drink from, this speaks of my blood that is shed. That there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. You know, what we're reminded of, obviously, in just this Passover meal, in this communion, in this Last Supper moment, for us, we have this little cracker and juice. We say, Jesus, it was your body that was afflicted so I could be brought in. It was your blood that was shed. That was my sins that could be forgiven. I love that Jesus, they took it, he ate it, and he passed it out. Do you know what Jesus was doing at the Last Supper? He was going back to the Genesis 3 story, where what did Eve do? She took of the fruit, she ate it, and she passed it out. That Mark shows us, Matthew shows us the same words. Listen, he says, Jesus took it, ate it, passed it out. Exactly what Eve did in the garden, Jesus is doing and undoing. And I love this because he's saying, hey, hey, this meal, this meal that separated people from God, this meal back in the day, I'm offering you a new meal that brings you in. Communion for us is a, a meal, a small meal, just to remind us how Jesus brought us in. That we once ate and it separated us from God, but now we eat of this bread. It reminds us of Jesus' body that was broken for us, of his blood that was shed for us. So I just want you guys to grab your communion. I want you guys to take it, reflect on the cross this way. This was what Jesus did last night for us. He got his, his people he loved around a table. He got some bread, he got some wine, and he redefined this, this Passover meal and says, this again, this body, this bread here is my body, which is broken for you. This cup of wine here, listen, this is my blood that's shed for your forgiveness of sins. Though they don't think they really knew what was happening then, obviously they look back after the cross and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We know what this means now. 
Listen, we just want to join in with the church, all of the world doing the same thing tonight, celebrating the broken body of Jesus, the blood of Jesus. We want to give you some time to just reflect on that. Listen, if you've maybe never believed in Jesus or trusted in Jesus, we want to say this meal is available to you right now if you believe in Jesus. That this meal is available to anyone who's willing to, to make the same statement this Roman centurion made that truly Jesus was the Son of God. See, it just takes that confession of Jesus, there is no one like you. Confess this, you are the Son of God. Then Jesus would say, take, eat, drink. For us, it's about that, that same confession. So I just want to give you guys some time to reflect on the cross, to reflect on this moment of that last supper, that last meal, and just enjoy Jesus. Enjoy what he says about how he brought us and he was cast out so we can be brought in. I'm just going to give you guys some time just to pray over your communion. We're going to worship a little bit. When you are ready, take, eat, and drink. Just spend some minutes just praying over it, thanking God for it. We just want to reflect right now on the sacrifice of Jesus. So I want you to take some time, bow your head, close your eyes, pray over your communion, worship, sing. Just reflect on the cross, reflect on Passover, reflect on this moment, take it in. Just enjoy your Jesus. Enjoy this, this little mini meal. Oh, how we love. 
Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. Father, we thank you for, obviously, your deep love for him, your deep love for us, that for this moment, there was a sense of brokenness or lack of intimacy so that we could be brought in, that you took our sin and laid it on Jesus. We thank you for that. Father, we just ask that you remind us of this truth, that God, that the message of the cross, it is the power of God. Lord, it's the power of God that saves. We thank you, Jesus, that it is finished. We thank you that your work for us was enough, that you were stripped naked that day and beaten so that we could be brought in and loved. We thank you, Jesus, for this great reversal that took place at the cross. We thank you, Jesus, for everything you were undoing. Lord, we just ask that even now as we just kind of want to wait, we want to be still, we want to remember what Saturday must have felt like. God, we just ask that even as we just kind of approach Sunday, Jesus, that we would, like the disciples on that first Easter Sunday, that we'd be surprised by hope, that we'd be surprised by resurrection, that Jesus, you would just prepare our hearts even for the celebration of Sunday, that Friday was incredibly dark, spiritually, physically, but the light would dawn, that Jesus, you would rise again. And we ask God that you just do something in our hearts, prepare us for this moment. We ask Jesus, in your precious name, amen. Amen. Hey, why don't you guys just stand up with me, stand with me before we, we dismiss you guys. I want us to like, just reflect and take in the, the Friday to the Sunday moment, the Saturday, like what was that like? If you've not read just the final few days of Jesus, if you've not read this story privately, I would say, please do so. Please do it alone. And like prepare your hearts for that Sunday, uh, a day that no one was ready for, a day that no one was expecting, but it was coming. And so for us, Sunday is coming. And we, we celebrate. We would be the most pitiful people on earth if Christ did not rise, but Christ is risen. But it's almost like we want to take in, we want to take in the cross. We want to take in what it must have been like for the disciples. And I would just encourage you guys to reflect and read and pray over this yourself. Listen, we are uh, one, two days away from, from Sunday. I want to encourage you guys just to invite someone out. Text someone. The worst thing that can happen is say, no, thank you. But just invite some people. This, this is where I believe this, the power lies in the resurrection, obviously. And so invite them to a Sunday message, to this Sunday. Uh, we'd love for them to hear just the Easter message. So uh, please help us. Pray for people by name. Just see what the Lord does. But we guys, we love you. Uh, God bless you. Enjoy your Friday, Saturday, and we will see you on Sunday. All right? That's it. Love you guys. God bless you. Have a great night.